ahead and let's pray before we read and we open God's Word together this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. We need it. We need to hear from you. And so we pray that that is exactly what would happen this morning, that you would speak to your children, that you would speak to us as sinners and saints, and that you would awaken us to your divine love and your goodness for us. And we do pray that as we receive the word, we would do so with humility and that we would be encouraged to glorify you, our God in heaven. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, this is the holy and errant word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between him and you, you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, if I was to ask you this morning what makes a pizza pizza, what three things make a, a pizza pizza? If one of you said, well, I think it's mustard that makes pizza pizza, We'd all say, you're crazy. You're not even talking about the same thing. Now, we can differ on what makes for a good pizza. I think deep dish, Chicago style, is the gold standard. Uh, you may believe that New York thin style, that kind of fold it over, jam it in your mouth, swallow it down your throat, is the gold standard. You can hold that opinion. Uh, it's the wrong opinion, but you can hold it. Uh, and I'll reluctantly grant that that is pizza. Uh, I think we can all agree that a pizza can have different toppings. It should at least have some meat and have some vegetables. I think we can all agree that there should be no fruit, no fruit on pizza. Uh, whatever that thing is, let's just clear the air. Whatever that thing is, that cookie crust with cream cheese and then fruit on top, it's not a pizza. That's not pizza. We can differ on some of the things that pizza looks like, but there are three things that mark a pizza, and we all know it. It's got to have dough, it's got to have sauce, it's got to have cheese. That's a pizza. Three things. We're talking about what makes a church a church. Makes a church a church. Protestants historically have said that there are three things that make a church a church. The sound preaching of the Word, 
rightly administering the sacraments and the exercise of church discipline. If you don't have one of those three things, you have something, but you don't have a church. All three of them are needed. Those three marks. So, without the word preach, the church ceases to be a church. Now, you can have deep crust preaching of an hour, or you can have thin crust preaching of 10 minutes, but you got to have preaching of the word. It is important that we hear from God and his truth is impressed upon us. But it's not that alone. You also have to have the sacraments. And the Lord has given us the Lord's table and he's given us baptism. Why? As a visible representation of what we have heard by the word through our ears. And so the word and the sacraments, they always go together. You can't separate them. They both have to be a mark of the church. But just as necessary as those two marks are, so is the third mark, which is often, too often, neglected in the church, and that is church discipline. Church discipline helps to uphold the preaching of the Word and the right receiving of the sacraments, and it is calling people to the character and the holiness with what the Word is, as it is preached to us, calls us to. You don't have a church without all three marks of the church. I've seen how Christians recoil at the idea that a church would practice discipline, but we should recoil when a church doesn't. Now, understand the hesitation. Understand the hesitation. It has often been abused by leaders in the church not done rightly, it's possible for leaders in the church to use discipline dangerously. We've all seen that. But it's more than a possible danger when a church doesn't employ discipline. So, I want to start here this morning as we think about this text. Start with this, that discipline is an act of love. Discipline's an act of love. In fact, an unwillingness to correct sin is a form of hatred. It's a sign that I actually don't care about you enough. The writer of Hebrews says a very similar thing. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Love and holiness go together. God is love. God is holy. Those two refrains are found throughout the Scriptures. And so, love that turns a blind eye to sin or treats it as insignificant is not biblical love. It is what I would call a worldly sentiment or it's a weak form of endearment, but it's not biblical love. And we all know this. You know this just intuitively. We know this because we have children or we've been around children. The writer of Hebrews makes that point as well. We know that children need to be assured of our continual love, and they need discipline. And a lack of discipline actually ruins a child. In fact, I think we are witnessing that in our society, a generation that has steered clear of disciplining kids for almost any reason is now reaping the fruit of that as these self 
self-focused and self-indulgent children have become adults. Does discipline make a perfect child? No. Neither does discipline make a perfect church. But as discipline is implemented for the blessing of the child, so it's implemented for the blessing of the church. So I know as soon as we say discipline, church discipline, all of us kind of, we get a little tight inside. What we have to remind ourselves of is that this is love. I want us to think through that grid and try and think through this together this morning of what Jesus is emphasizing in this text and what he is calling us to. I want to look at the necessity of discipline this morning. Four points. The cause, the purpose, the course, and the promise. Necessity of discipline this morning, four points. The cause, the purpose, the course, and the promise. First, the cause of discipline. Jesus tells us here, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Let's first point out what is not stated here, what Jesus is not talking about in this text. He's not talking about going to your brother or sister who might have offended you or who annoys you or who said something that you disagree with or who has a differing opinion from you. That might be a reason to approach someone and have a conversation, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What he's talking about here is sin. And sin is our common enemy, our common enemy. And sin not only seeks to destroy my relationship with God, it not only seeks to destroy my personal being, it seeks to destroy my fellowship and my communion with you and yours with me. If we were to say, what marks sin? What are some things that are marks of sin, one of them would have to be it's a destroyer. It is never seeking to give life. It's never seeking to make you fruitful. It's never seeking to give peace. And Jesus is saying here that sin has sought to destroy fellowship here. There's been a breach in the body of Christ because of the sin. This is the cause of the discipline. And because there has been this sin that has caused this breach, Jesus then says, go. Go to your brother. As soon as I hear go as a Christian, my mind fires. You hear go, you think of the Great Commission. Go, Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because you have a word. You have the word of truth, and there's been a breach. There's a breach between these sin-fallen, darkness-trapped unbelievers with their maker. And you have the word. And so you go to them. And you preach to them Christ crucified. That they might receive that mercy. That they might know that there is grace to cover over all those sins that they've committed. So that breach might be healed vertically. Same here. Go, Jesus says. Why? Because you have a word. Go and tell him his fault. he's, He's saying there's a breach, a breach horizontally, and you have the word that can come and heal that breach. Go and tell him his fault. 
He's not encouraging us to rush to judgment. He's not encouraging us to be harsh or severe or angry, but neither is he advocating that we sweep it under the rug. There's a breach. Forgiveness doesn't come by dismissing things like they never happened. It doesn't come by acting like they happened, but it's not really a big deal when it was a big deal. We go and we tell them, but with purpose. And that's our second point, the purpose. Jesus makes it quite clear that there is a particular purpose for going to our brother or sister. The reason for going isn't primarily about our feelings, though those may factor in. It's not primarily about showing the person what they have done wrong and to cause them to grieve, though that can have its place. It isn't about clearing our own conscience so we feel like we've done our part, though that can be a benefit. It isn't about making a point and showing we were correct, though that can feel awfully good. The purpose of going and confronting is, Jesus says, to gain your brother. To gain your brother, there's been a loss. Sin has caused a breach. You see, this is family business. He's a brother, she's a sister. And families rooted in love, they don't seek to ostracize, they don't seek to malign, they don't seek to punish, but they do seek in love to restore. Restoration is the purpose. Let me give you just a few rules as you go with this purpose in mind. Notice, you first go quietly, you go alone. Why not announce it? Because this is family. And you don't want to harm the reputation of a family member unnecessarily, so you go quietly. You go alone to start with. You not only go quietly, you go prayerfully. Listen, reconciliation is costly. It's costly not only for the person that has offended, but it's also uh, costly for the person that has been offended. And so that means that I need to bathe this in prayer. I need to be praying for that person. I need to be praying for these circumstances. I need to be praying for this reconciliation. And if I have not bathed this in prayer, then I better not go. Because I won't go in humility. Dea Carson said, if it's hard to accept a rebuke, even a private one, it's harder still to administer one in loving humility. And we all know that to be true. All know that. Not only go quietly, not only prayerfully, but you go gently. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, many people will respond with defensiveness, no matter how gently you come. Depending on the person and the situation, saying a hard thing is often received as a lack of gentleness, but we want to make sure, as much as we know ourselves, that our conscience is clear that I came in gentleness. I spoke in gentleness. Quietly, prayerfully, gently, and peaceably, 
We go peaceably. We, we remember the purpose. We go with a reconciling spirit. The, spirit the, the goal is not to punish. It isn't to win. It's to restore. And it's to reconcile. The verse that regularly goes through my mind is in circumstances like this is Ephesians 4.32. Paul was writing to the church there in Ephesus and he says, be kind to one another. Kind to one another, tender hearted. That from the ferocious Apostle Paul. Be kind to one another, tender hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Well, that's a pretty good grid to look through, isn't it? Now, having said all this, not every sin needs to be confronted. We don't want to shy away in cowardice, but neither do we need to jump to every offense. And it is often a matter of wisdom. I remember a, a young man years and years ago coming to me and saying, Pastor, how often should I be confronting my wife about her sins? And I said, Brother, I don't know how to particularly answer that. But I can tell you it's much less than you think it is. <laughs> we shouldn't be shy in going if we're convinced we need to go. But neither should we jump at every moment. We also stop just for a moment to address all of us in this room that we are all sinners. And we are all, because we are sinners, we're blind to our each to our own fallenness, we're blind to our own sinful inclinations. None of us are what we desire to be. None of us are what we should be in Christ. And so that means that people will come to us over time in our Christian life, and they will confront us with a sin. And that's to be welcomed. It isn't easy, but growth seldom is. And when they come, there's something that is to mark us. Look at the language here in those who are being told their fault in the text. We have the same word that is used over and over. Verse 15, 16, and twice in verse 17. If he listens to you, verse 15, you have gained your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen. And again in verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church. Let me listen. I may not agree. The person who comes to me may be wrong, but I have to be willing to listen, to search my own heart, to be prayerful about it and say, Lord, are you trying to remove some kind of blindness that I have to some sin that is here? And I have to be willing to repent. But none of that happens if I don't listen. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel, Proverbs 12, 15. Proverbs 29, 1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. The person that comes to me is not my enemy. The sin is. It's our enemy. So you listen. The cause the purpose, third, the course. Jesus clearly lays out a course in our text. Now, before we go through it, I want to 
make it clear that I think he is giving us a general course. This is not like baking a cake and he's laid out all the instructions and it's this and then this and it's a general, this is how it should be. So here's the course. First, if someone has sinned against us, we go to the individual privately. Now, there's been a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about this, about Matthew 18. Oh, if I read one more kind of social media post about someone saying, did you Matthew 18 with this person before you said this? When it was a public sin or is a public misteaching. And so that person is rebuking that person publicly. There's a right place for that. It doesn't mean just because it is a public sin that it needs to be rebuked publicly. But if it is a public sin, then there's a place for it. It can be right to confront someone publicly. But otherwise, the first step when sinned against is to go to the brother or sister quietly and alone. This isn't an opportunity to talk about this with my six closest friends and maybe a dozen more for advice. We're often creative as Christians. We like to rationalize, no, you go to them first. If they don't listen, then you take one or two others along with you, Jesus says. That is, you don't give up. You love them enough, and they are important enough that you will persevere, and so you'll go again. You'll take some others with you. It's not clear to me in this text whether those witnesses that you take with you are those that have witnessed the sin that has been committed or whether they are to be witnesses to the rebuke that you are getting ready to say to this person again. I think it's the latter because that seems to be the flow of the text. And it makes a lot of just practical sense. If there is a barrier between me and this person because sin has been committed Often, me just going to them alone doesn't get very far. And so there's a benefit then to go in with another person or two people with them to say, look, this is, this is the grievance. This is the sin. And often, they will take it much more seriously because there are other people there and they will see the weight of this sin, make sure it's people they respect. But if he or she refuses to listen then, Jesus says, you tell the church. And this is an official act. It means that you go to your elders who represent Christ's rule in our midst. We explored that back in Matthew chapter 16, so I'm not going to revisit all of that with you, but your elders have been called by God, and they've been ordained by God, and they've been called by you to serve in this role where they are representing Christ's rule among the people of God in this local church. And so, if going to the person individually and then taking a couple of others didn't cause the breach to be, to be overcome, then you go to the elders, and the elders are then to investigate. And if they find this also to be sin, then they are to confront the individual with their sin. If they refuse even then to listen, Jesus says in verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I think this may be the single hardest thing in all of church life. That's when we get to this point. And for that reason, I'm thankful, thankful that Jesus makes it a command here. 
Because if it was a suggestion, we wouldn't do it. It's too hard. But it's a command. It's not a suggestion. If he refuses to listen, even, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is what we have come to label as excommunication. The unrepentant sinner is treated as an outsider. They're no longer considered part of the the community of believers are no longer to be considered a child of God. They are no longer to be considered part of our fellowship. They are now outside of us. They are cast out. They're not to remain here because they, they should not continue to receive some of the benefits of this community and continue in their sin. They need to see how offensive it is to God and to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they are put outside the church. Paul will say in Thessalonians, you're not even to associate with them. Why? So that they are left with the thing that they say they love more than Christ and his people. And so that they see the emptiness of it. And hopefully are led back to repentance. A refusal to repent from sin is a mark of unbelief. It's a, it's a declaration that I love my sin more than I love Christ and his bride, the church. That this sin has my devotion more than Christ. So the individual is cast out. Now listen, it's a long journey to get there. It's been a long journey for that person to get there, steeped in their sin. It's a long, patient journey that the elders of the church ever take to get there. And yet, it's a very short journey to return. To quote Wayne Mack, no matter how many steps you've taken away from God, it's only one back. And that's the power of God's grace. You can go charging off in that direction for so long and take so many steps. And God's grace is so powerful. And it is so mighty and so wonderful that He can, in an instant, you can just turn around in repentance and you're back. Just one step, just one turn. Jesus says here that the elders of the church bind on earth. What they bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. You saw that in chapter 16 as well. It's not that they are causing something, the tense of the verbs there, or what we would call the future perfect. They are not saying that elders have been given the ability by the Lord Jesus to dictate to God something that is future, but rather that they are declaring decisions that God has already made in heaven. Well, how do they do that? Well, they do that by their commitment to the Scriptures and by their firm reliance upon the Spirit. That's how they discern that. Jesus will say in John 20, he will gather the disciples together and he will breathe on them. And he says this when he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It is by attention to the word of God and by the gifting of the Spirit, as these men meet together as a court of the church, that then they discern what it is that the Lord 
is directing them to do with this person. And yet, I would say there is nothing more difficult in the work of ministry than this. Trying to awaken someone to a lack of repentance in their life. Because the lines, they are seldom clear. The circumstances are always a little confused. There are always reasons for this or that being in this person's life. It's not easy to discern. But here comes the great last point of this text. We have the promise of Christ. What feels like the most difficult of things in our life together as the body of Christ, the Lord promises here His presence. You often hear this verse ripped out of context. Uh, people will say, we're two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. He's there with us. And so every circumstance where we're two or three gathered together, He's with us. Look, there's truth to that. I, I, I don't want to, to nullify that. There's truth to that. But that's not what this verse is talking about. The context is church discipline that in the context of discipline, there the Lord is present with His people. Here, in the most difficult of decisions, He's with us. And if He's with us in the most difficult of processes and decisions that the church has to discern, that gives me great hope for everything we face as a church. ordained uh, four new elders a couple of weeks ago, and I told them in their training, as I've told a myriad of elders through the years, church discipline is often the hardest, and it is also often the sweetest of ministries that occur in the church. It's hard. It isn't easy. But some of the best fruit flowers from it. It's true in parenting. It's not fun to discipline. And yet often the fruit of that flower is greater than anything else in our children's lives. Life has changed. It's awakened. It's brought back to fullness of life in Christ like it has never enjoyed before. And Christ promises to be with us in these decisions. And I've seen it. I've seen him show up time and time again in these decisions. We feel like we are in muddy waters, opaque waters. You can't quite figure out how to get through this. Where is the light at the other end of this? And then you get a bunch of these men who have been called by God, ordained by God, in a room that are praying together and discussing these things together. And all of a sudden, you know what? And you know when? And it just seems clear. provides great hope. Jesus is not only our Savior. He's not only our Lord. He is also the King and Head of the church, and He is constantly, constantly, constantly at work within her. Maybe the sweetest moment I've ever witnessed in ministry was a moment uh, years ago here at URC. It was an individual who approached our session that had been excommunicated years before. 
And that individual was now joining a church in a different area. And as that individual was joining a church, turning back to Christ, was led to the conviction that they need to come back here and heal the breach. That they needed to meet with the session here. So there was an evening we gathered as a session downstairs in the conference room and this individual who had been in gross sin and refused to repent all those years ago said with tears to the elders that night, said, thank you. Thank you for loving me so much that you excommunicated me. The individual talked about how there was a, a letter that the church had written, the elders had written to them when they were excommunicated. And that letter had stayed in this person's chest of drawers, dresser at home. And the words would go through their mind over the years. And in a sense, that letter was calling out to them. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to turn back to your Savior. At night, we uh, all sat there, group, a room full of grown men blubbering like babies. Uh, and it wasn't because the elders were proved right. It wasn't because this individual was proved wrong. It was because the Lord Jesus showed, as we saw in the text last week, that he'll leave the 99 to go after the one. And he is a God of sovereign salvation. And he had brought, her, brought this person back. The breach was healed. The sheep was saved. Friends, the Lord is at work. He's at work in our church. He's at work in our midst. He's at work in this world. And part of the way that He is at work is that He is at work through you and I in the lives of one another. We have the Lord Jesus. We have His Spirit. And He gives us one another. And so we walk this life of faith together. And where there is a breach, we seek to heal it. And where there is sin, we seek to confess it and repent and ask for forgiveness and grant forgiveness. And we continue forward together. He's given us one another, even as He has given us Himself. This holy God, this God of all love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of sovereign salvation and that you are at work in this world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are King and Head of the Church. We thank you, O Spirit, that you give wisdom that surpasses our knowledge and our understanding. We pray that you would help us to be a humble people that listen people of courage that will speak to one another where there is need, but also a people of restraint and humility where there is not need. We pray that where there are divisions that you would heal the breach, that we would be quick to ask for forgiveness, quick to grant forgiveness. 
We pray that as we march forward together as the church of our Lord and our Savior, that you would use such love manifest in our midst to impact the world around us that knows nothing of reconciliation, that is struggling to understand what it means. Let us example it forward, and let us shine as bright lights in this world. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen.